We're going to turn now to reading from God's Word as he actually describes that very thing of Christ's death for us. This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Going to be reading the whole chapter. Again, this is that, that passage where it talks about Jesus as the suffering servant dying on our behalf. And read the whole chapter again. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Listen to what God says. Who has believed what he has heard about from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray as we come to hear God speak. Lord, we know that every part of your word is inspired by you and is useful for us because it is your word to us. And Lord, we pray that you would send us your spirit so that we understand it and that you would make it useful to us. Lord, please make our hearts those fields that will yield 30 and 60 and even 100 fold as we take what you have said to us and as you drive it into our hearts and as you produce the fruit of obedience, of love, that we would desire to be more like you. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our sermon is coming from Luke chapter 9. We'll be reading Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 22.
Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Or who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. I'm going to start by telling you a story. It's a story of when I I met somebody. turns out he was actually kind of famous, but I completely underestimated him. We were living in New Zealand at the time, and I met a really tall, really fit guy at church. He said that he played rugby. If you know anything about New Zealand, that's the national sport. Everybody plays rugby. That's not all that impressive. But then he said he played rugby professionally. Wow, that's a cut above. I was pretty impressed to meet a professional athlete. Well, I only found out later that he actually played for the All Blacks, the New Zealand national team. may not know a lot about rugby. I love rugby. New Zealand All Blacks are, at times, the best team in the entire world. So when I met this man who played for the All Blacks, I was meeting one of the best rugby players in the world... I had no idea. I, I really thought he was just another guy that I met at church. What was the result of my mistake? Not much, I guess. Maybe I missed out on some selfies I could put up on Facebook or some good stories about the games he played. I didn't miss out on much. But you know what? The same is not true when we meet Jesus. We cannot afford to underestimate or misunderstand Jesus. We miss out on so much more than stories and selfies if we do not know and love Jesus. We're missing out on forgiveness. We're missing out on fellowship with God. We're missing out on salvation and eternal life. This is no small case of mistaken identity. This is a matter of life or death. In our passage here this morning, Jesus asks the critical question, Who am I? And he shows us that he is the promised, suffering, and victorious Savior. So we will see here that he, Jesus, is the promised, suffering, and victorious Savior. And we see that in two basic points. The passage breaks down into two, pa- two pieces. First, the disciples' confession in verses 18 to 20. And then we'll see Jesus' explanation in verses 21 to 22. Now these verses here, especially in 18 to 20, this is one of the critical points in the entire Gospel of Luke. This is the first time that the apostles finally show that they understand who Jesus really is. Now the crowds and the disciples, they've actually had lots of evidence 
about who Jesus is. They've heard his teaching now for a couple of years. They've seen miracle after miracle that he's done. And actually, they've heard other people talking about Jesus. Not just other people. Remember, they have actually heard demons who know who Jesus is. They have heard demons saying things like, You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. You are Jesus, Son of God Most High. The people and the disciples know, or they should know, who Jesus is. But despite all the things that they've seen, all the things that they've heard, they do not really understand who Jesus is until now in our passage. That's why this is such a big turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you notice, in verse 18, Jesus actually turns first to the disciples to ask them about what the crowds thought. He says, who do they think that I am? All those people who've come to me for healing, for teaching, maybe just to see a miracle, who do they think that Jesus was? Well, verse 19 shows us they thought Jesus was a prophet. Maybe even one of the greatest prophets like Elijah, but still only a prophet. At the end of the day, only a man chosen by God and given great power and authority. Well, last week we actually saw there's a big problem with that, right? What Jesus does and says goes far beyond what any other prophet has ever been able to accomplish. That was one of the points of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the previous verses. No prophet has ever come close to what Jesus is able to do just like that. That's one problem. But in our passage today, we see there's actually even a bigger problem in believing that Jesus is just a prophet. Because if Jesus is just a prophet, then he cannot be the promised Savior. And if that's true, that means that Israel, the people of God, are still waiting for God's promised Savior. And they are still waiting for God's promised salvation. All those promises in the Old Testament about that coming salvation are still just promises unless Jesus is more than a prophet. Well, in verse 20, Jesus turns from the crowds to focus on the disciples. The crowds may say that Jesus is a prophet, but he says, Who do you, my closest followers, who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked that question of Peter, must be Peter, he speaks up and he speaks for all the disciples and he says, you are what? The Christ of God. That's who he says Jesus is. Those four words, the Christ of God, those four words are some of the most important words in the entire Bible. Because Peter is saying that that man standing in front of him is the Savior that God has promised to send all the way through the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 and God's first promise of salvation right after the fall through all the prophets all the way to the last book, Malachi, God has been pointing forward to this man standing right here, to Jesus. 
This is the man who God has promised to send who will save and lead his people. Let's look more closely at what Peter says. Peter calls Jesus the Christ of God. The word Christ is a, is a title. It's like when we say President Biden. President is not part of his name, right? If you went and you actually pulled his birth certificate, it would not say President Biden. It would say Joseph Biden, right? Well, a similar thing happens when we use the word Christ. It's a title. It's describing who the person is and maybe the role that he is fulfilling. And Christ means anointed or the anointed one. That's describing something that Jesus is going to do. Now, when you hear the word anointed, what do you think of? Probably not something from our experience. I've never, I can say, I've never seen somebody anointed. And you probably haven't either. Because now in the New Testament, we don't anoint people with oil. But that wouldn't have been true in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, anointing was actually central, a central event in the life of Israel. If you think about it, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil. Oil was being poured out on their heads. You might remember the story of Samuel and David, for instance, right? That God chooses David to be the next king, and he sends Samuel as prophet, not just to go to David and tell him he's going to be the next king, but to take that horn of oil and to pour the oil out over David's head to show that he is going to be the new king of Israel. Prophets and priests and kings like David, they were all anointed, and they were anointed to, to set them apart, to show that they are special. Actually, to show that they have a special job or a special role. Their role now, after they've been anointed, is to serve God and the people. But, but that anointing of God is more than just kind of a, a stamp of approval. You know, today if I want a special role, maybe I need a, a certification. Maybe I need to go to school and get a, an actual piece of paper like a diploma to say maybe I've learned a skill or I'm ready for a, a, a special kind of job. But anointing is, is actually much more than that kind of piece of paper that says I'm ready to do something. Because anointing with oil in the Old Testament was a picture of something that was happening, something that God himself was doing. It was actually a picture of the Holy Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit consecrating these men to actually be able to serve God and the people. When that one man poured oil on another, he was actually showing, God was showing, that he is setting this man apart and he's equipping him with the Holy Spirit for his work. And we know as we look at the Old Testament, all these anointed prophets, priests and kings of Israel, they were all pointing forward to someone else. They were pointing forward to Jesus, the Christ. See, all these men, they were anointed ones, but they're pointing forward to the anointed one, Christ. But the people would have known that because God actually promised. He promised to send His anointed one. 
One of the clearest places this comes out is actually in Psalm 2. Listen to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Now listen here. And against his anointed. In that psalm, we're actually seeing God's anointed one as king. And this king, as the psalm goes on, this king, this anointed one, is promised a kingdom that will cover the entire world. David, any other king of Israel? None of them ever had a kingdom like that. This promise in Psalm 2 is pointing beyond David beyond any of his descendants, to the coming anointed one, the king that God himself will provide. Now, already in the Gospel of Luke, if we would flip back in earlier chapters, it's become clear that Jesus is this anointed one. He is this promised Christ. He is this king. In Luke chapter 1, Mary is told that Jesus will be given David's throne and rule forever. Plug for Sunday school. We looked at that this morning. Come to Sunday school. Uh, A little bit further in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit uh, meets a man named Simeon. He tells Simeon that he would meet the Lord's Christ, who Simeon knows will bring salvation. Then Simeon goes to the temple, and who does he meet? He meets baby Jesus, and he sees the Lord's Christ. And a little bit later in Luke chapter 3, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit after he is baptized. That's actually where you see Jesus' anointing in his baptism. As the Holy Spirit descends on him, he is anointed with him. It's actually where you see how Jesus is so much better than anyone in the Old Testament because they received the sign of the Spirit. They received that oil. And some of them truly did receive the Spirit to do their work. But Jesus receives the fullness. He receives the Holy Spirit without measure at his baptism when jesus is anointed by the holy spirit at that point he is set apart as the truly anointed one so we know that jesus then is the promised anointed king who will save his people and that's what peter understands as he looks at jesus and recognizes for the first time that jesus is the christ of god Peter now knows that Jesus is the king that God had promised would come. That Jesus as king is the one who has received the Holy Spirit. That Jesus as king is going to bring salvation to Israel. And that Jesus as king is going to restore his people. As we look in the next couple of verses even, it becomes clear that Peter and the apostles have a whole lot to learn about Jesus. But the point here in Luke 9 is that they finally got the basic answer right. Who is Jesus? He is God's promised Savior and King. Now in verses 21 to 22, Jesus gives us an explanation of his identity. That's what we see second, Jesus' explanation. What, what Peter and the other disciples now understand about Jesus is really amazing. And you would think that they should go and tell everybody else about what they now finally understand. But not yet. In verse 21, Jesus actually tells them to stay quiet about who he is. 
Why? Why would Jesus say that? Why wouldn't he want them to spread the good news about him? Well, we see from Jesus' words in verse 22 that the apostles do not fully understand what kind of Christ Jesus is. What does Jesus say in verse 22? He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In this verse, Jesus is teaching the apostles about the work of the Christ. And what he says here, this is challenging teaching. Make no mistake about that. The Old Testament, as we look at some of those passages, the Old Testament is pointing forward to what seems to be a victorious king. And that's true. But Jesus here is emphasizing the suffering and death that comes first. The apostles need to learn that Jesus' victory and that Jesus' rule will only come through his suffering, rejection, and death. The disciples may have found actually Jesus' words here even more challenging because Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in verse 22. This is a title that Jesus actually frequently uses throughout the Gospel of Luke. 25 times in total, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And part of the Old Testament background for that title comes in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel says as he sees a vision about the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That vision of the Son of Man is a vision of victory and honor, not of suffering, rejection, and death. So the obvious question is, how do these these things fit together? How can Jesus call himself the Son of Man and then describe his suffering and his death. How do these things fit together? Well, in verse 22, as Jesus brings both of these things together, he's showing that the Christ, the Son of Man, the one who is promised everlasting power and authority, he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus is both the Christ and the suffering Son of Man. And He needs to be both of those things in order for you and I to be saved. Did you notice that Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, and must die? Just one little word. Must. But actually, our entire salvation is tied up in that one word. Let's look at Isaiah 53 for a minute. We read it earlier. Listen to this. It is Jesus who God wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5. It is Jesus who took on the chastisement that brought us peace. It is Jesus who was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 8. It is Jesus 
who suffered was rejected and who is killed for the sins of his people. That's why Jesus suffered many things in his life. That's why Jesus was rejected by those religious authorities of his time. That's why Jesus was killed by being hung on a cross. Because God chose to save his people through Jesus. That is why Jesus must suffer and be rejected and be killed. He must do those things to save you. But Jesus knows that that's not the end of the story. He knows that he will not end in the grave. Just as surely as he must die, just as surely he must on the third day be raised. Verse 22. Jesus knows that his perfect sacrifice for sin will be accepted by God, and he will be raised in glory now to reign as the king. The cross leads to the crown, and the suffering of the Son of Man leads to his reign as the Christ of God. If I asked you that question that Jesus asks here, who do you say that I am? What would you say? Not just what you would say with your mouth, but who do you believe Jesus really is? People have lots of answers. I've heard them all. Do you believe he's a good teacher? Do you believe he's a good man? Maybe a very religious man, an example, someone who can teach us about God. None of those are right. Jesus is the Christ, the suffering Son of Man. The one who God sent to save his people from their sins and to bring them into his kingdom forever. Do you believe now that you need Jesus to be the suffering son of man? That you need him to suffer and die, not just for others, but for you. Because your sins are so bad that you need Jesus And because God's holiness is so great that you need Jesus, nothing less than the sacrifice of Jesus will do to pay for your sins and to bring you peace with God. Do you believe in this Jesus? The only way you're going to come to that belief, that understanding, is the work of God's Spirit. You need God's Spirit to open your eyes, to see Jesus for who He really is, and then to change your heart so now you want to know Him and love Him and serve Him. Jesus actually tells Peter this in the parallel passage in Matthew where we see the same events. Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. No, my Father who is in heaven has shown this to you. If you do not truly believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, or if you know others like this who don't believe, make this your prayer for them, for God to reveal Christ and for God to give them faith. And we can pray. We can pray boldly for these things because we know what God's promise is. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise that as He works in us, He will bring us to that salvation. But what what about us who are believers, who can make this good confession, not just with our lips saying that Jesus is the Christ, but in our hearts actually confessing Him to be the Lord? 
There are three things I think that we can take away from this. Give thanks for God's work in you. God himself is the one who has been at work in you to bring you to faith, to know Jesus, to be able to confess that he is the Christ. It is nothing that you or I did to bring you to that point. And as you give thanks for that, make that kind of humble thanksgiving part of your daily prayers. And as you pray this way, this kind of thanksgiving is going to be worked out into your life. I've often been struck by especially older, more mature Christians who are seemingly in constant awe of God's grace in saving them. They just can't get over the fact of what God has done to bring them to salvation. Can you think of someone like that that you know? I hope it's not somebody else. I want to encourage us this morning. Be more like that, starting today, with that kind of thanksgiving that just get works out, gets worked out in our life so we can't not stop talking. But second, I want, to give, I want us to, to encourage us to give thanks for God's work for us, not just in us, but for us, because when God gives us Jesus the Christ, he gives us exactly what we need. Jesus in his death, resurrection, and in his reign now is doing exactly what we need for our salvation. I would encourage you, meditate on how much he loves us to do exactly what we need and to be willing to do what we need at such a great cost for himself. When Jesus says these words of suffering and being rejected and dying, do you understand what that would feel like what that would mean for him, not just to be suffered, to experience suffering and rejection by the hands of men, but to even be rejected by his father. Think about the amount of sacrifice that Jesus undertook for us. But third and finally, grow in our confession of Jesus as the Christ. This is not just a confession that we made sometime in the past, maybe when we came to faith or Maybe we stood up here and made a public profession of faith. No. When we confess Jesus, the Christ of God, Jesus, the suffering Son of Man, this is a living, growing confession. This is something that we are growing in day by day, Sunday by Sunday, as we use the means of grace to be actually knowing Jesus in deeper ways. But one of the ways that we actually grow in our confession is by experience. Because what God promises is that actually he's conforming us to the image of his son. We are actually slowly but surely being made to look more and more like the Christ that we confess. The son of man suffered. So you know what? We will too. Does our confession of Christ have greater depth when we actually experience his sufferings? Sometimes when we suffer just in our bodies, but also when we suffer the attacks of enemies. Do we grow in our confession? Yes, we do. We understand Jesus and his work so much better and it's so much more real to us. But we don't just confess the Son of Man as a suffering Savior. We also are confessing him as the Son of Man who is raised and reigning. And if Jesus must be raised, if that is true of him, then we will too. And as sure as Lee, as he is reigning now, so we will too. And you and I, as we sit here this morning, we are confessing that truth in hope, right? 
We see in part, we experience in part, we share in his resurrection in part now. But there is so much more coming. I don't know about you, but I really cannot wait to confess Christ with my resurrected body when I'm made most like him. When I can look back on my life as I'm standing in heaven and when I can see God's work all the way along to bring me to this point. And now I can freely, fully, and truly confess Christ for eternity. Is that something that you long for? Is that something you look forward to the day when it comes? This really is something for us to look forward to. It's something that we are looking forward to now, even as he helps us to confess his name more and more here below. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we would pray that we would learn more and more to confess Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, as the Anointed One, our King, who died on our behalf and is now reigning and will be bringing us to be with Him. Lord, we pray that you would make this not just words that we say, but that you would actually change our hearts, increase our faith, increase our understanding, change the way that we are living so that we are actually serving the Christ that you have sent. And Lord, it's not something that we can do. We pray that you would give us your spirit, the spirit of the risen Christ, to be working out that kind of faith, that kind of love, and that kind of service to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.